Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. I'm all alone in the shed because we've got three great pre-recorded segments for you this week. We figured if we streamed live at 8 p.m., quite a lot of you would be watching the football. So by the time you watch or listen to this, football's either come home or it's gone to Rome. We just hope that both teams had fun. We are making some changes uh, uh, regards to how we do the live streams in general. I'll give you a bit more details in the outro, we want to get to the F1 bit. That's what we want to listen to, isn't it? So, towards the end of the show, we're going to have a tech segment with Matthew Summerfield and Matt Two-Rumpets. See, I got the trumpets thing in. We're also going to be speaking to Murray Barnett, who was the former head of Global Sponsorship and Commercial Partnerships for Liberty Media. So that's a director-level guy that was there right from the beginning of the Liberty F1 reign and all the way until about a year ago as well. And first up, we are very lucky to be joined once again by Alex Brundle, who is a sports car driver, presenter and commentator for the Feeder Series F2 and F3, and also for F1 for the Pit Lane channel for F1 TV as well. Matt and I recorded this with Alex on Wednesday, and we started by asking him about his F1 commentary on the F1 TV Pit Lane channel. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoy the F1 TV stuff. We don't go out in the UK, which make that uh, clear we are uh, their sky only, but we go out to quite a lot of other territories as well. Uh, anywhere that basically anywhere that doesn't have a big broadcast deal, uh, we uh, we go out to them on a OTT piece of content called the PLC, which is uh, it's nice to call a Formula One race uh, occasionally. Um, Matt's here also. Hello, Matt. Yes, I am one of the delightful places that gets your commentary, and it's super great to see you here. Maybe you could quickly explain a few of those acronyms for the people <laughs> who don't know them. Yeah, yeah PLC. Sure. 
Yeah, we were well, we were actually just talking about uh, just <laughs> talking about how uh, how I can get away with all of those acronyms on the PLC, uh, the pit lane channel, of course, which is uh, a three box layout uh, that we have for uh, that content that goes out on F1 TV Pro, which is F1's own sort of streaming surface where you can make those Grand Prix available. That is extra content. You get the main screen, which is the, the international feed, what we'd like to call the IF. And then you get a couple of onboard feeds. They mix around. There's a nice bloke called Tom who uh, who likes indie music. He does that. And he puts, and he basically almost directs three Grand Prix. really. He, he directs all three boxes and we commentate over the top of that with availability of a load of data and a load of extra stuff, um, which is great and super nerdy, which, uh, which is why I love it. <laughs> yeah, so basically most of the broadcasters don't do their own feeder series commentary. So they would take the F1 TV commentary, which is or was Alex Jack's and yourself and, uh, and a cast and crew of others, but when it comes to F1, we're restricted to TV coverage of Skype. So we'll get the Sky team if we watch it on TV. But if someone from a territory not tied to a deal like that uh, goes on to F1 TV, they, they default to the Sky team, but they can also choose to go to the pit lane channel with you guys. So it's basically pick your brundle, isn't it? So bro- broadly, it's really weird because I sit on <laughs> in the same room talking into the same microphone and and 10 minutes apart i'm talking to a uk audience only or a sky audience only and then moments later i'm talking to a non sky audience only but i work in formula 1 for formula 1 so yeah work that one out and uh, and you were telling us that actually people have to kind of actively select to get to your commentary and the type of people who would use the interactive tools to get to your commentary are no offense to your listeners but they're nerds so you can kind of nerd out while you're calling the race you know what they're they're people that really want to know everything about the grand prix which is going on you know they, they they're not happy to just understand the basic thread of it the those people have sought out an extra over the top piece of information about the Grand Prix to really drill deep into the thread. One thing, you know, they love the information. We don't have to explain our acronyms, but you need to get it right because they are watching. <laughs> I can tell you there's there's watching and there's and there's PLC watching. They're really watching that Grand Prix. You get the odd critical tweet headed your direction, do you? Well, not not actually that critical. So it's not really critical in terms of um, it's not really critical in terms of uh, the kind of sort of generalized abuse you might get with a huge audience. Yeah. But what we do get is kind of like a polite help, which is I'm not sure if that's better or worse. You know, they're, they're kind of coming in and going, um, just to let you know, you're actually incorrect on lap 43. <laughs> Uh, he didn't go wide in turn three. He went went wide in turn six, and that was due to a ten percent oversteer, not a fifteen percent. Well, you, you know, say, that, that thank one. you for teaching me. I, I suppose, yeah. as annoying as it is to go like, "Oh, you swat," you, you will over time learn from an intelligent audience as well. Totally, totally, and it kind of a, a come, becomes a little bit like it was 
uh, when I used to call endurance racing, uh, where actually you kind of, I mean, Radio Le Mans used to have this thing called, the, and they still do have this thing indeed, called the Radio Le Mans Listeners Collective, where actually it was almost like a sort of a, like a, like a group broadcast. Like you were broad, you yeah. had the microphone in front of you, but you kind of all tearing the race apart together, which I kind of quite like. Isn't it amazing the difference the commentary team can make on on your perception of the race and how it goes? So you can have a nerd fest with you watching F1. I think uh, the default for me is still the Sky team, mostly because they're talking about exactly what's definitely on TV and they've got a weight of just resources and researchers and stuff like that. But, you know, you can equally, you can tune in to say uh, Jack Nicholson and Jolian Palmer and it's a completely different race atmosphere it's it's much more laid back you're just speaking to your most informed f1 friend kind of and it's just an amazing responsibility isn't it to have your broadcast and your microphone and shape the narrative of a race certainly is and it's it's nice in a way like i always try to do it i I try to imagine myself as sitting on the sofa next to the person who who might be viewing who might be viewing the grand prix and uh, and if I said anything where they would turn to me, slap me and go, shut up, then I then I don't say that thing. And I, and I really try not to. But, but you know, there's yeah, it, you totally do. You shape the audience's per- yep. perception of the race. And it's a great responsibility also to the competitors, uh, specifically in the feeder series stuff as well. Oh, OK. Look, uh, so what you're sort of talking to talking about there is kind of any unintentional biases that might come through or any unintentional cheerleading. We talk about this a lot on Missed Apex because we tend to declare whether we're a fan of someone and then you can judge my comment in context. So, for example, we'll talk about the Sky team. There is a general kind of, there's a slight British favouritism in that they're wishing the British drivers well. And then you've got a bit of balance now because you've got Rosberg and Paul de Resta gleefully in delight any time Lewis Hamilton has any kind of issue. Do, do you feel like you have to actively stop yourself? Because you do get favourites throughout a season. You do go, that guy's story is lit and I want him to do well. Certainly, it, you have to watch yourself all the time. Uh, and I would always I would always say, I hate them all equally because they're <laughs> driving the car and I'm not. Um, but the uh, for me, the one I really have to watch uh, is, is trying not to give unconscious bias to drivers I know or who I would ask for information because you know sometimes you would reach out to a guy that you may have raced elsewhere or that you just because it's comfortable for you you already have their contact details and you go mate uh this thing with Piastri where he's got a penalty for using the wrong engine map off the line in Monaco um what how many engine maps are there and and what are and what do they do this year oh, they do this, that, and that. And then it's quite easy to drop that person into the broadcast. Then you kind of subconsciously watch them. And I really, really don't want to be that guy, especially in Formula 2 where they've all made their way there, and and indeed Formula 3, where they've all made their way there. They deserve their opportunity. And even if, you know, even if I'd had a huge, I mean, I, I... I don't see that much of them these days, actually, because we're broadcasting remotely. But even if I'd had a huge argument with one of them, you know, the at, at another time in another place, I'd like to think that I could be professional enough to afford them a completely fair chance from the combox. But it's it's almost it's almost a lie, isn't it? Because everybody has got those subconscious biases or gets caught up in a narrative. So you might, you have to sort of adjust consciously, don't you? 
you can do all you can do is is your best all you can do is your best with that kind of thing uh, and just focus in on being you know being fair and i think also with the feeder series stuff uh me and jakesy we always kind of say to each other look it's not quite like formula one like from a formula one commentary i believe is extremely you know harsh and tough and expects the best yeah. from the best drivers in the world for, for me i always took the conscious decision that i really want to be in the driver's corner like I'm not out to bash people. I, I want to. I want them all to succeed in the kind of way you know, like a a boxing coach would watch young boxers, and even though they're messing up, would want them to succeed. You know? See, Matt, he just wants all the teams to have fun. Right. Well, I I have a question for you about that because <laughs> it's been been my experience. There's probably at least one person who you absolutely in real life cannot stand. So is it easier? to be fair to that person that you really dislike or, or is it easier to be fair to that person that you definitely get on with? Like one of those people you say that you like to, um, that, that will give you information, buy you the odd drink, et cetera. Yeah. I think you've just got to call it. You've just got to call it absolutely as you see it. And if you call the action, you can't go wrong. And if you, you allow the fan then to make their own decision. And there are, you know, there are drivers who I've, you know, maybe even shared a team environment with who are now in feeder series that I, that I didn't particularly enjoy spending time with. There are those guys, of course. Um, the fact that you don't know who those guys are and you watch feeder series <laughs> for me is a compliment because it means I'm doing my job, which is to completely even handedly call the series uh, yes, for me, it's harder because there aren't that many of them. For me, it's harder to back away from giving preferential treatment to people I really, you know, people who help me out and people I really like than it is to, you know, bash some not, you know, avoid bashing somebody that I may have had a bit of a disagreement with. That's insanely nice of you. You should perhaps look across the channel at the Dutch commentary. They're not shy. Have you heard the Dutch commentator? What's his name? Mol? Olaf Mol? <laughs> I have. I believe there are. They are allowed. They are allowed to swear. Are they not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in Denmark also. Yeah. Yeah, they're allowed to swear. Which I'm not quite sure how that works, but we're we're definitely not. <laughs> so I mean, it's yeah. They are. They are partisan, uh, certainly. Yeah. But it's you know they have a very very specific. Uh, they've got a very very specific charge there, haven't they? In in, in Max. <laughs> yeah, we were just we were just talking about the Dutch fans at Austria and how actually you, you've got a. You've got to kind of just score them in the end and just go, yeah, eight out of ten. Those guys absolutely lit up the Red Bull ring, and I've issued the challenge to the to the fans at Silverstone to to match that. Go on, it's your turn to see see what you can do compared to the Dutch. Um, I want to talk about the the kind of roles that you have in commentary. Last time you were on, we were talking about that balance between kind of lead comms and like color commentary and filling in, and how it's quite a you know they're two different skills. And with you and Alex, I, I can't call him Jaxie or whatever. Uh, between you and Alex, uh, you, you kind of did have a bit of a crossing and emerging of that. However, there's also, when you come to a programme, the presenting side of things. And so generally the lead commentator will do, you know, Crofty will be there going, welcome to Austria, it's a round circle. So when you suddenly found yourself in a situation where your lead presenter got stuck at the border and stuck in traffic... Um, that's code for, I assume, hungover 
face down in a gutter. <laughs> uh, you suddenly have to find yourself. I, mean, I listened to the whole thing and like listening to you suddenly switch into that presenter mode and clearly like you're finding your feet as you go. It's new, but you're just having to just grind it out and deliver it. You did it very well, but it's a, I, I've been in that similar situation. It's a hell of a challenge. Yeah, still trying to remember his business credit card uh, <laughs> pin. pin at the Hermitage. Um, yeah, I, uh, I did do that. And I have been doing more of that, actually, because as I sit in the PLC, we've had a uh, pit lane channel uh, to, to clear my acronyms. Um, we've had a kind of a rolling group of commentators. And there have been moments where, uh, particularly, for example, where Tom Gamewell had to head off and call Indy and I was sat across from Sam Collins, who's very much a technical guy. I then fell into that color side of the booth. And again, at that moment where uh, Jakesy got stuck at the border coming into Monaco with their PCR testing temperatures and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, you just have to do it. Um, I think what I really didn't want to do, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to do more and more of that actually. And I really do enjoy that. And I am passionate enough about racing to do it. What I didn't want to do is, you know, assume that I could just because I was there and I had a microphone in front of me, which I think would be a very unintelligent way to go about it. Or end up doing an impression of him almost yeah, as well. Totally. Or, or yeah, or end up, yeah, just uh, messing it up in any way. <laughs> you know, I, I just... I know how hard that job is and I know how uh, aggressively people uh, and uh, how many years people prepare appropriately, you know, go, go to Castle Coombe, call a Formula Ford race. Yes. Then they go somewhere else and they call another race or they, you know, they start off in hospital broadcasting or they, whatever they do. Um, and actually, you know, I just didn't want to go screaming in. It's like, yeah, I'm a race car driver. I can do your job. No problem. You know, uh, because that's clearly incorrect. So you you do your time. Right. We actually have a question from one of our uh, our patrons. Would love to hear from Mr. Brundle about the actual race production. What is the production setup like for the F1 TV pit lane channel team? Sounds like somebody who may pay attention to that. How large is the crew on race day? How do you stay on top of all the on-track action Full of so many relevant battles up and down the grid. Well, Great question. So it is a, it is a, well, it's, we have a lot of sound people who roll in and out as kind of contractors um, and, and, you know, some connections people as well. Then we piggyback off the, the international feed crew, really. So uh, Tony, who's kind of in charge of production of the whole thing, is, is sort of got one hand in the international feed as well. Our main man is a guy called Tom, who, direct the the triple box which you'll see and then we have a very very good ap called joe who handle all the uh the graphic side of things and playing stuff in um so i guess we are plus the you know we're plus the talent they call us talent i'm not calling myself talent no 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 um, embrace it my contract also says talent so I, <laughs> i'm like no no it's literally on my contract yeah we are uh we are uh i would say seven eight person strong team over a weekend um so in that scenario and that includes everyone you know personnel who would handle sound equipment and so on and so forth so one thing that listeners might not always appreciate so i've done a little bit of commentary i've done a, a couple of seasons karting commentary and generally you can like go to Witten mill and, and and wilton mill and see the whole track you know or daytona and just you lose the little end bit off the end 
when I did some car commentary at Castle Coombe, suddenly I went, Mark, I can't see anything. <laughs> I could see like three corners. And I think that's what people don't appreciate is that even uh, the likes of uh, Martin Brundle and, and David Croft, they've only got a very small view, pro- probably of the straight. And a lot of it is based on timing screens, I guess. And I mean, timing screens, even in karting, I lean on a lot. Um, and and TV feeds dotted around. Do, do you have like 14 screens in front of you? Yeah, so we have this massive, I mean, our commentary box is just incredible because it's in situ. It's in one place. It never moves. And uh, so we've got driver trackers. I've got tire trackers. I've got timing screens and sectors and all sorts. And I can basically, uh, it's like my little cockpit, you know, I, I yeah. kind of, I, I moaned at them until I had it exactly right. Um, like an astronaut. We've got that. I've got that sitting there and I just sit in the middle and scheme <laughs> about who might pit when. And then we get little extra bits of, of team radio as well. Uh, I have some resources where I can watch on boards and listen into some team radio stuff. So that all plays into the, the content that we can add. Top tip, get yourself an 11-year-old to sit and watch the timing screen and tell you when gaps are changing significantly and and when somebody's what i what i set him as say like we're getting to the end of like the first stint i'm always like watch the top four or five tell me when there's tire drop off or if someone makes an early stop i'm like tell me when those the new tire lap times start to disappear it's so handy highly recommended you need one of them yeah yeah. exactly (laughs) have hundreds of hundreds of children to work to work for us literally on one on one issue each hang on a minute hang on a minute we might be getting into dodgy territory here uh, joe always amazes me joe saywood because he he has a he, he sits there with a lap chart he doesn't listen to any commentary and he's literally just map it we've seen it it's seen like a like an actual lap chart like like the old cricket scoreboard days and it's just it is so hard to follow the action like that i don't know how he does it but but so, like me and matt have been evangelical about fans following the timing screens because that's the race. Yeah, I mean, certainly the guy who I'll be working with next week, John Hindhow, who does endurance racing, uh, has done for a long time. I'll be working with him at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. He can tell you your stint averages from the top of his head, you know, and he'll look down a timing screen and he'll, you know, he'll be sort of tracking a couple of different cars. And let's say the top five cars will be like, He'll have done an average of a 25.6. He'll have done an average of a 25.4 <laughs> and what gap that relates to. And I am just nowhere That's not you. on that stuff. Not, <laughs> I, I need all the technology. I need everything, you know. And we have a, an amazing guy as well called Sean Kelly, virtual stat man. So when we yeah. start coming out with... Yeah. Uh, when we start coming out with, oh, and this is the 15th time George Russell has been wide at turn one in the last 462 races that that's not us just you know having a thought <laughs> bubble that all pops up yeah. on a laptop sorry to ruin, ruin no the we've had sean we've had sean on the show here he's even done a stats quiz with us hasn't he matt we should uh, bug him to try and to do another stats quiz for us yeah he, he might very well be that was kind of well honestly for me embarrassing because i knew like none of them no maybe maybe we can convince alex here to be a contestant next time sean does a stats quiz my favorite one comes every year at Bahrain and it's something like you can wade out into the sea at the coast of Manama for like 500 miles or something. It's just such a random statistic <laughs> that had nothing to do with the race, a car yeah. circulating anything. Uh, the ones I always ha- hate are when they're trying to kind of 
do a stat to predict what might happen and they go, never before has somebody won from fourth on the grid and that's where Lewis Hamilton is today. So he definitely won't win. And then when he wins, they never kind of track back. But there's, there's all those sorts of stats that come through purely for entertainment, of course. It's nice. I mean, to be able to go, okay, this is Max Verstappen's third, first hat trick or something as he crosses the line to give something extra, I think it's good. Uh, Crofty, although I know he gets he gets a, a tough time sometimes, if you listen in to his, his, pre-race, uh, his pre-race hit, his pre-race stat hit, and then all the way through the race, he is he is the king mm. of sieving through of sieving through Sean's stuff and and delivering the goods on on that kind of thing. I I happen to think he is such a technically excellent commentator and deliverer of words that it kind of does hurt when uh, when people get at him. But it's just because he's the he's the tall poppy, isn't he, in the commentary world? I think so. Yeah, I mean it's it's really tough. And one thing, even from just a tiny little bit of commentary I've done. I know is that the bigger the audience gets, the bigger the percentage of the audience that won't like you. And yeah. that is unavoidable. And I don't know why it's like that, but it is unavoidable. Oh, oh Alex, like here, me and Matt, we take it as the more abuse we get on YouTube and live chat and email, the more we go, Oh, we must've found some new, some new listeners. Because, yeah. and, and, and I got, I got really pleased today. Uh, somebody said on the YouTube comments, they went, that idiot with the beard, he's such a, a moron. And I didn't look past that because I was like, oh, he called it a beard. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so you get weirdly kind of used to the to the abuse, I guess. Um, let's go to some of our, our listener questions. Oh, Stuart just wants to wish you all the best with United Autosports for Le Mans this year. Some of us will be watching and cheering along, even though we know Spanners doesn't understand the concept of a 24-hour race. I know, just have several shorter races. So you're, you're at Le Mans this year. When is it? I'm at, I'm at Le Mans. Uh, it's later on in August, mid-August now. Um, I'm not with United Autosports, actually. Oh. I'm with Inter Europol Competition this year, who oh. are another private team private team in lmp2 okay um and they are not as united autosports were not conjoined with a manufacturer so i right. can't say i'm driving a porsche i'm driving an orica lmp2 car uh it is in the second best class okay and you we will try to win so are you saying that it's basically a porsche it's not a porsche right it's not a it's not a and this is the problem that we're trying to remedy in sports car racing at the moment is basically what we're currently doing of bringing those manufacturers back in so that i can come back here in a couple of years and say yes i race an audi a porsche a peugeot a ferrari etc random quick sports car question what did you think of the new peugeot hypercar i think it's awesome you have to tell uh, us I what think, it is first, I think, Alex. Sorry, we're a bit of an uneducated so the, F1. The new Peugeot hypercar is a hybrid hypercar with no rear wing that's going to complete. It's going to compete at the top class. Le Mans has a very interesting hybrid system in it. And I am completely behind hybrid systems in sports car racing and entirely not really behind increased hybridization in F1. I saw uh, what can only be described as a rant tweet. Um, Alex, on your Twitter feed, and you were you were saying, "Show me," and I imagined you pointing angrily at a screen. And another thing, show me a road car that requires downforce, and then talk to me about road relevance. And then you kicked over a cat, cleared a coffee table, and stormed <laughs> off. That's the tweet I saw. It's a good point, though. They talk about road relevance, and most of F one feels like it's aero. 
It is aero. And look, I mean, you're dealing with a carbon fiber single seater that's going to do, you know, average 60 laps of a circuit on on a Sunday afternoon. And it's going to be great and it's going to be exciting and it's going to be an amazing spectacle of manufacturer competence and brilliance. What it's also going to be is absolutely nothing like a Mercedes road car whatsoever. And I don't care. I don't care at all. I love the fact that Mercedes do that. I think that Mercedes, for example, and all the other manufacturers and Ferrari and Alpine and so on and so forth are demonstrating their brilliance. I don't think it has to be exactly like their road car to to convince me that they can do good road car things. A sports car driving around Le Mans for 24 hours, stopping slightly less than the opposition because it's got an amazing hybrid system. That's a narrative for me that works. A uh, a Formula One car with a absolutely mandated engine architecture being forced to be more hybrid than it formerly was. It, for me, that that doesn't that doesn't work as and that doesn't work as a narrative, uh, and it's not really any greener. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, knew that would trigger Matt a bit. Come on, then. Come just back. a little bit because I agree with you a lot in terms of relevance, especially on the aero side. The only relevant aero is how can we make it slipperier for any car that drives on an actual real road because they have rules about how fast you're allowed to go. So aside from that. The engines that are now in uh, Formula One with the MGUH, the thermal efficiency, and this to me is because I see Formula One as an engineering race and a driver race. And on the engineering side, the efficiency of that engine at north of 50% with the amount of horsepower they're now creating and the amount of the lesser and lesser amount of fuel they need to create it, that absolutely positively is part of Formula One. They've always built ridiculous things that went stupidly fast and broke often. And this engine absolutely fulfills all three of those major requirements. Yeah, I do. I totally agree with you. They've been there. I just don't see how increased hybridization brings incremental gain. Like, so we've done it, right? They've done it. They've done incredibly complex hybrid engines. Uh, and, you know, hybridization has been part of Formula One. Why now do we have to carve another 800cc with all of the associated sound and all of the associated petrol heady excitement off the engine and throw in still more complexity in terms of the and, and grandeur and weight in terms of the electronic side to add what really is not that much to the show beyond cars inexplicably being fast or being slow based upon a notion of energy that they have or haven't recovered and having to explain that to the audience. I don't see what it adds. Uh, Speaking of explaining things to the audience, we've got a great question from Sam. And excuse me, Mr. Trumpets, I I will thank you to keep your tech time to the designated slot in the last half hour. Did you manage to keep the tech time to half an hour this time? Uh, Pretty much on the nose. And how much extra patron-only content have you rambled on? About another half hour or so. And then I left the golf talk out entirely. (laughs) Fair enough. So Sam is asking, for casual viewers and race fans, it can be difficult to separate what part of a good performance, quali lap or strong race, is the car set up, what is the driver? As a driver, for so for you, uh, what markers do you look for personally to tell if another driver with great results is a legit step above 
or it just happens to be sat in the car or at the right moment. Matt, have you got an addition to that cue? Uh, yeah, in fact, you could settle a question for us. Well, how about this question first? Bed. This question first. Well, uh, when he's done, okay. I will ask my question. Right, okay, let's do it that way. Uh, so the things that really stand out uh, are incredible tyre management because you can't just let the car do that. That has to be a There has to be a synergy between driver and car. And also the driver has to have... Uh, given some information to his engineer to be able to allow them to do that anyway. So something like, you know, those those incredibly long uh, stints we've seen Lewis Hamilton pull off on the hard tyre through the year to, to snatch race victories away from a potentially faster Red Bull at times. Th- that's, that's impressive. Uh, and then the racecraft, the racecraft, uh, for example, I felt despite his penalties and so on and so forth, when you watch back and I watched back just before um, coming uh, on with you guys, Lando Norris through the Austrian Grand Prix yeah. and his management of his management of the car, the settings of the car to have the power when he needs to have it just at the right moment to defend his position is incredibly impressive. So I think what Sam is asking here, though, is how can you, you're in a great position because you're an an actual race driver, how can you tell that Lewis Hamilton is managing those tyres really well or that the Mercedes just is really kind on tyres? I mean, there are certain factors that you just simply, uh, that that you can see, you can compare them with their their teammate, you can see how they're driving, but realistically, everything like that is always going to be, and I'm going to do one of those, a meld between the driver and the car. There is no way to separate the two. They are they are uh, connected entities. Well, well, maybe that's that's it. Maybe just as F one fans, we've got to stop being so kind of emotionally invested in one driver over another because there really isn't a Lewis Hamilton, is there? There's a Lewis Hamilton in the Mercedes car. That's the entity. I mean, when you sit down with a bunch of engineers who are running uh, you in race cars and talk about this stuff, they just they just don't really see it that way at all. They don't really see, you know, hierarchy drivers. They see a driver who may have done a better job on that day. And then they just go and seek out kind of all of the reasons why one car went faster than the other and put them objectively in a list. But this kind of like, Uh you know, so the driver might be third in the list. Yeah, you yeah. know, this kind of like footballish, you know, Hamilton played well today. It, it It's not really how those involved in the sport view the driver's performance. And I'm just going to guess that tyres are always at the top of that list, aren't they? Yeah, tyres, tyre management, tyre <laughs> energy, uh, and the way that the car, I mean, it's the only pit the race car that touches the floor, as you know so well. So, yeah, it, it's it's everything, you know, it's everything. Uh, Alex. Right. Go on, Matt. What was the uh, the question that was going to settle an argument? Well, it we have recently had a discussion you, about you and the, me about the Haas cars. Oh yeah, and and my question <laughs> to you as as a professional driver, me? someone who's driven oh, at night okay. at Le Mans, is there any driver on the Formula One grid currently now, uh, with the assumption all the other cars do their maximum in qualifying? Is there any driver you think could climb into that Haas? And get it out of Q1. Yeah, Mick Schumacher, because he did. In uh, in France. 
Okay. So, be, be, beyond <laughs> that, basically, I mean, the, uh, the, the question. I'm in without anything going wrong with any other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, no, but no, but to be fair, it, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you mean you mean qualify it? Let's say you know, do yeah. I? Is there a driver that I think could drag more? Uh, right. Could, or, or even the quality. Qu- yeah, the question yeah. might be: Are the current has drivers representative of of what of a driver can do? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was sitting next to Kevin Magnuson the other day, uh, uh, a, and he said it in the media as well. So I, I know he won't mind me saying I was sitting next to him at a sports car test. He's sharing a, a, an Oracle with his dad at the mall, um, and he is insistent, or he would he would I wouldn't say he's insistent, but his view is that in a Formula One car, in a modern Formula One car, it's very difficult to lose much more than half a second. Really? If you're a competent race car driver, because, you know, unless the setup is wrong or something is wrong or something really doesn't work out, all things equal, he reckons that everyone who's a co- who's a kind of top 10 single-seater driver of a, of a proper championship could be within half a second of each other. Wow, that is that's actually fascinating. So when when there is that half a second gap, say like there is with Lando Norris and Ricardo at the moment, you go, oh wow, there's really something, there's something wrong there because we would expect to be those those drivers to be well matched, but there's such yeah. a big gap. I mean, the thing, I mean, it's wrong is a wrong implies there's some kind of failure or error mm. or so on and so forth. It could just be that the driver is not, you know, as could be the case with ricardo is taking a while to get his head around that car i I personally think that lando's playstation generation uh car management is what really sets him apart from ricardo in that car interesting um you know when you look at a track like austria okay so it's, it's uphill it's down dale uh for a driver who can manage that process for a driver who can manage that process and understand when he's going to get dividends back from using that energy and when he's going to, and when he's going to lose it, something which we won't gain by making more of, by making the cars even more hybrid. Um, let it but, go. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to let it go now. Uh, <laughs> he, he, I think that that is how he's outperforming. That is how he's outperforming him. So that the, is interesting. The, that's what he means by the, the driving style. I see. And uh, since you mentioned father-son combos, we have to ask about your Jaguar E-Type classic car race that you're going to be doing at the end of July in Silverstone. So you and Papa Brundle, uh, Brundle Senior, is it a team event? What's what's happening there? When you say you have to ask, I want to make it clear that I've not forced you to ask. No, this is it's, not. This is not an advert. It's not a <laughs> rider. Not an it's, it's editorial not. insert from me. I will come on the podcast, <laughs> but you have to ask me about my Jaguar race. No, it wasn't that. No, genuinely, it's fascinating. Um, there are I, no contractual <laughs> stipulations in in the in the podcast. I spoke to you a, a couple of weeks ago about a video you did for Sky with your dad at the Nordschleifer. And yeah. I know that was going back a while, but yeah. it was just such a wonderfully heartwarming video documentary. I'm sure you can still go back and f- and find it. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, about racing. It was about your two's relationship. You just seemed to bounce off each other. There was such an admiration and a mutual respect as well. It was just a wonderfully put together video. And I challenge anyone to to not like it. So now to see you guys teaming up again uh, to go and drive these Jaguars is, is very interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's to, to give you a bit of background, it's the 60th anniversary of the Jaguar E-Type's first build. 
basically. At the Silverstone Classic, there will be a race only for E-types to find oh, who's got wow. the fastest one. <laughs> uh, old boy, of course, won Le Mans for it for Jag um, back in the day. That that's a long that's a long race. It's in France. How how um, long is it? Yeah, very. There's it could it it's so long it could even be a sequence of shorter okay. races it if they be. had a sense. It goes on for so long. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's it, yeah. That's that's the deal. So Jag Classic themselves have released a load of new new but old uh, mm. Jaguar E types. If you want a Jaguar E type, basically they'll make you one uh, <laughs> on the same production run. This car is the first of that run. Uh, it's stripped out. We're going to race it. Brilliant. So I take it, you know, it's like an endurance setup. You you swap cars at some point. We swap. We swap. We swap drivers. Yeah, we swap we, drivers. We jump, swap not, that, not that much of a long race because you know old cars. They don't. They don't really do. They don't really do long races. But mate, it's four speed eight pattern straight six. It's proper racing. It's how I'd have F one on it. It's, it's, it's proper racing, Matt. I don't see them dropping the sequential shift if I'm being completely honest. So <laughs> as an old person, how terrifying is it to you as a young person to be compared to your dad in terms of race pace? I mean, were you were you like, ah, I got this? Or or was it like, <laughs> oh man, I'm sweating bullets here to be faster than my dad? So so in a prototype, I'm completely, you know, we've tested, we've raced, I'm completely relaxed, like I have <laughs> the the downforce edge. Yeah. I tell you what, in those, because it's his era, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a little bit before. Making him, excuses actually. already, but yes, continue. Yeah, well, I, I was a, just a tiny bit quicker at the test, so that's okay. Oh, okay. But he's, he's super impressive in them, you know? I, that kind of mechanical sympathy, you know, clutch shift, back on the power, drift, slide, manage the brakes and the downshift. I mean, it's they just have it. They just have it. From years and years and years of driving race cars, you know, you got to remember when when Dad made it to F one, F one cars were still, you know, yeah. dog leg H pattern jobs. You know, at, even at even at that speed. So, yeah, they just have a sympathy that's born out of pure muscle memory for that kind of thing. I, I like that you were you went to straight to the downforce knowledge advantage. You've also got like some thirty years or so advantage as well. Um, it must be interesting for you. Obviously, you'd have grown grown up with. Uh, your dad being a top-flight Formula One driver, I think he himself has said, you know, he preferred sports cars and felt he was better in sports cars. So have you seen, have you been able to track his pace as he's gone through middle age and beyond? What's the drop-off? You know, it's really not, I mean, it, he doesn't, the the fitness that you need to drive sure. the modern era of sports cars is huge. And actually sports cars have changed loads. I mean, there's, the sports cars of today are are faster and have much greater downforce than the Formula One cars of, of his era. They're, they're stiffer as well. Um, and so, you know, it, it's much more, even LMP2 today is more like, more like Formula One than, you know, sports cars were back right. then. Um, but his, he's always been rapid. He's always been rapid. And he's, and he's one of these people that just doesn't really, he's not really fallen away. I mean, 2016, he he jumped in a, a prototype at Le Mans in a support race, one-off race, and out-qualified a load of kids. Some of whom are now, <laughs> some of whom are now works sports car drivers, you know. And he just turned up for one day, 
Yeah. It, 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 so I'm, I'm not, I, I, it's obviously easy to, to, and I do look up to him. It's easy to big him up as his son, yeah, yeah. but it's genuinely scary. He's so still so, so good. So, so the thing for me would be just general fear. So like as I approach 40, like I'm just terrified of everything. I don't want to take any risks. Is that a factor? I think he's more terrified of, I think he's more terrified of having to face himself like, like decline in any way than he's afraid of anything right. else. So it, 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 he would, he would genuinely rather face any other fear than admit that he had fear. You know, his, his greatest fear is, is in some way being, <laughs> being afraid of any, of anything. So he just, he just goes and goes and goes to the point where, you know, he's been on the exercise bike. It's, it's like a 45 minute race, you know, yeah. in a Jaguar E type, but he's been on the exercise bike flat out <laughs> with the focus that Getting he's going to train it. for this race. And, yeah, and is this something it. we can watch on our televisions? Yeah. 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 It's going to be broadcast on uh, ITV4, I think, the the classic at Silverstone. And I believe there's a live feed as well. I'll pump out all of the info yeah, over my social media. I tend to pick up the onboard camera footage as well and pump that out over social media because it's worth a watch. Generally. So if you can pick through Alex's Twitter feed in between rants about downforce and just kids these days, uh, then you will be able to find out <laughs> Old where... Old man shouts at cloud. <laughs> ...where Alex and Martin are racing their Jaguar E-Type. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been wonderful hearing you on, um, on F1 TV and the feeder series and grow as a commentator. Uh, please say you'll come back pretty soon. Yeah, I will. I love talking to you guys. I uh, love the stuff you do, being on the pulse of F1 and all motorsport the way you are. I will certainly come back and see you soon. I would say we'll add links to all your stuff, but literally just search Alex Brundle. He's super famous off the telly. Alex Brundle, thank you so much for your time. Fantastic insight there from Alex Brundle. As always, I enjoyed that greatly. I hope you did as well. We'll have, we'll have to try and get him back into the shed soon. But coming up now is Murray Barnett. You might not have heard the name, but he is uh, was the always oh, a fancy title here head of global sponsorship and commercial partners for Liberty Media. So we're talking director level of uh, at Liberty Media when they came in and took over Formula One. So for this conversation, we kept it nice and short, just to introduce you to who he is and uh, and what he has done. And you can get kind of idea of what he's seen. And he's already agreed to come back and do a kind of ask me anything. So I'll get a bunch of listener questions and we'll grill him the next time he comes on. But please sit back and just enjoy a little peek into the world of Liberty Media taking over Formula One. Now then, imagine having a seat at the top table of a brand new era of Formula One. A new company comes in to take over from the long Bernie Eccleston CVC stewarding of Formula One to breathe new life and energy into one of the world's most iconic franchises. Well, today's guest does not have to imagine that because he was there right at the top as Liberty took over Formula One. So welcome to The Shed, Amari Barnett. How's it going, Murray? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Oh, would you mind clarifying for for us and our listeners, what was your position at, at Liberty Media? So I was director of commercial partnerships, which basically means sort of head of sponsorship and all things uh, partnership related with, you know, the likes of Heineken and Rolex and, and others that you see around the track. Oh, wow. So you had like that job of building on existing partnerships, getting new people in. And was it very much was the aim to grow 
on what F1 had already attracted. A hundred percent. So I think the, the the premise of Liberty Media coming in was that although Bernie and CVC had done a great job, that there was still a lot of room for Formula One to continue to expand and grow and attract new audiences. And that includes commercial partners as well. So what was it that Liberty looked at with, say, CVC and Bernie and said, well, you're not doing that? Was it a case of Bernie Eccleston was kind of just happy with where it was or did he not have the scale to do what Liberty could bring as a as a massive media corporation? It's a good question. Liberty look, looked very much at how you see the big US sports organisations so like an NFL or an NBA, and they really are you know sports marketing giants. And I think they looked at what Bernie had done, which was incredible in terms of you know owning and running a global sports franchise. Yeah. But uh, felt that there was still a lot of room for it to continue to expand. And especially when you know, you know, you look at the US, for example, where Formula One was not the biggest sport, they saw a lot of opportunity in markets like that for it to grow. Yeah, especially with that the US focus. I mean we'll get onto that in in a little while. But I am interested into in how you found Formula One. So you know when you go and have a house viewing and the owners are there and they've got their best their best linens on the bed and uh, and and everything's like a show home the children have been put in the shed but then when you move in the cupboards have been moved you can see the bare wall the carpets have been ripped up uh, i'm not expecting you to sit here and and slate bernie but you know was it everything you expected when you arrived and moved in so there are a few people that are ahead of me i think i was number 4 or number 5 of kind of the liberty era if you like and Firstly, I mean, what Bernie had done was incredible. Uh, he he, had, he has an incredible amount of energy and it achieved so much for the sport. And I think that was the surprising thing is that with everything that he had already achieved, you expected there to be this quite robust infrastructure already in place in, in terms of how the sport was run. And actually, a lot of it was in Bernie's head or with very few other people that he had around him. And, you know, I, I forget the final number, but I think Liberty had added something like 250 people. And so you could argue that, you know, Bernie did 250 people people's worth of work um but i think you know liberty would argue that they'd added in a whole bunch of other stuff and uh, really uh, made it fit for purpose and i think you know they very much looked at you know organizations like the nba and said look you know formula one had no digital strategy no social media strategy was pretty transactional in some of the things it did on a commercial side and you know i hate to use the word fit for purpose but they tried to make formula one fit for purpose in the 21st century really so a lot of the deals that that were going on in F1 say that the commercial partners would have been very much used to uh, doing a deal over a handshake and a whiskey in a in a backstreet bar somewhere. Suddenly now these commercial partners have got to deal with a much more corporate atmosphere. Was that a hard transition? It's very difficult when you talk about commercial partners because I think they all approach it in slightly different mm. ways. And so I think some of them found the transition much easier and actually, you know, they welcomed it. And others were uh, had a little bit more trepidation around of it. And some of the trepidation is just that they'd been friends, not just part of business partners, but friends of yeah. Bernie's for a long time. And so I, I think that, you know, maybe they struggled a little bit with it. But I think when they saw that actually Liberty just had the same objective, which is to make the sport super exciting and appeal to a wider audience they all kind of you know joined the joined the joined the train if you like but then you with the the role of attracting new partners was it the product you thought when you, when you thought right okay okay I'm going to be able to sell F1 to commercial partners once you find out exactly what it is you know did the reality hitting hitting the ground running uh, was the reality different you know was F1 the product you thought it would be 
Well, so I, I've said this to you before, you know, I was a big F1 fan growing up, um, probably up until sort of the death of Ayrton Senna and then kind of tapered off a bit, for, partly because of Ayrton, but also just uh, sort of other things, you know, came along that uh, that sort of took me away from being that sort of passionate fan. And so I was delighted to to join and to sort of rekindle some of that. And I think the thing that I was most surprised about from a purely commercial perspective was actually just how complex the business is. It's not um, because it's grown so organically over time. It's not, you know, when you look at Monaco, the, the the way that Monaco has a relationship with Formula One management is completely different to the way, say, a Singapore does or mm. indeed any of the other circuits because it's got a different vibe to it. It's got a different history behind it. And so it became very difficult when you're talking about commercial partnerships to be able to talk to a brand and say, oh, you know what? all 20, 21 races, whatever it is, we're going to be able to give you exactly the same thing at all of those races, which is what they want. Instead, you would find yourself saying, well, look, I can give you this at this race. Oh, I can't give you that at that race. And it, you know, it's like a Rubik's cube. It was tough to kind of try and put it all together for some of the new partners, whereas some of the old partners were kind of, you know, a bit used used to to that. Oh, okay. So has that relationship with tracks changed under Liberty Media, like a new track coming in, say like um, Miami or something like that? Are they having to to fit more into a cookie cutter than say, you know, the, the, what you, what you say, Rubik's cube style contracts. Um, I'll answer it a different way. I just say that I think that um, Liberty's view has, has evolved as well. And, you know, what they thought at the very beginning is maybe a little bit different to how they think sort of three or four years down yeah. the line. And I think, you know, if you ask them, they'd, they'd probably say that they that they still think that they've got this amazing asset and I think that they've got this amazing asset that's continuing to appreciate and grow and I think that when you look at the new tracks they they all want to be part of that and I think there's probably a little bit more flexibility than was originally imagined about what the relationship with each track should look like because you know for example having a new race in Miami is very different to having a new race in Saudi for example Mm. in terms of you know the ways in which the race can be monetized and uh, the the kind of audience you're going to get and and all of that and obviously the circuits as well will be completely different but I think there's a lot more of a partnership attitude whereas maybe before you know, I've heard that under Bernie, it was a little bit more us and them. I think there's a little bit more yeah. of a feeling that, you know, the teams, the tracks and Formula One management all work well together now to to try oh. and grow the sport. Oh, OK. And it, well, happy families. It's worth pointing out that you are no longer a Liberty Media employee, um, just to just to be completely clear. But you did have a good three, four year run right from the beginning yeah. of that era. Um, yep. I like you, you saying that their viewer has evolved with what they can do with their relationships with their partners. I'm quite interested in what was Liberty's kind of initial plan, hitting the ground running. Did they think they were going to have a revolution? Did they think they were going to have an evolution? I I think it's more that it's easy when you see something from the outside to see what should be fixed. And then when you get in and you realise some of the parameters that exist or some of the obstacles that exist in terms of your ability to make that change... That it, then you have to slightly adapt your thinking. You know, uh, one of my one of my bosses at Formula One used to describe it as building the plane while you're trying to take off, and I think that's probably <laughs> quite a good analogy. Uh, but Liberty Media did come in and just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. They did make significant changes, like removing grid girls, trying the big American announcer at the Circuit of the Americas race. So an exciting period with lots of new ideas flying around. Obviously, you've got to be flexible because some hit some didn't, but they weren't afraid to try. 
Well, you, you and I talked about this the last time I uh, the last time we talked, and I think that that's a great aspect to what they what they're doing is that they there is this feeling of trial and error, and you know you don't know what's going to work unless you try a bunch of things. And the key thing is that if it's not working, that you sort of learn from it and and move on. And I think that's an ethos that came certainly from from ESPN, one where I used to work, and actually where Sean Bratch is the former managing director of commercial at, at formula one uh, and my direct boss uh, had also come from that they, they had this a, 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 a attitude at espn of very much let's try lots of things and see what works but make sure we learn from our failures as much as our successors all oh, right so that you've come from espn and, and rugby which is still a sport is it People still, people still play. Okay, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a general sports fan, so I've got rugby ball, I've got Formula yeah. One, I've got athletics. I, I, I'm a fan of all sports. Uh, well, I, I mean, obviously, you, you were high up in the organisation and, and stuff, and doing your job in rugby as well. And did you come into F1 and go, "Wow, this is you know something completely different. This is a different beast." Oh, for sure. Uh, and I think, firstly, you know, all sports organisations have their own idiosyncrasies and differences. But I think the interesting thing about Formula One is that um, with a lot of sports, you have a crossover. One of the things that you find a lot in Formula One, or I found a lot in Formula One, is that if you are a Formula One fan, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a fan of other sports. Whereas generally speaking, if you're a football fan, chances are you're also a tennis fan or a rugby fan or whatever. But there are a lot of people who follow Formula One who couldn't care less about any other sport. And that sort of sets itself as being a, sets itself apart as being a little bit independent, if you like. Uh, but So Liberty aren't afraid to make it entertainment you know it's sports entertainment and um i often say with f1 fans there's different types of fans fans like me that are interested in the the real sport of it the the racing the wheel to wheel are you allowed to do that whose fault was that contact you've got some people who couldn't care less about that and they just you know they want excitement and explosions and and flares and um and and skids skids skid plates titanium skid plates that spark um but you've also got the ones that just love the noise and the atmosphere and the drama and making it a soap opera. And I think that's probably the side where Liberty Media have gone, oh, you know, let's make more of a thing of the the drivers. Let's make it more of a story. Drive to Survive from Netflix is just a masterstroke to give Netflix that access. You know, they're doing things, like you said, fit for purpose for modern broadcasting. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I've got two boys who are 10 and 13 and I'm fascinated about how they watch sport completely differently to, to how I do. It's like, you know, my, my eldest son probably became a massive Formula One fan through Drive to Survive because mm. to him, he's interested in the stories behind the stories, right? He wants to know about what the drivers have for breakfast and, you know, what their passions are outside of outside of the racing. Um, but I think that that's part of why Formula One is such an amazing sport is that it's got such a rich... Um, a, a, a rich vein of content that covers everything that you're interested in. If you're purely interested in the sportsmanship and the racing, it's got that. If you're a technologist who's fascinated oh, yeah. by the different types of tires, it's I got that. I forgot about them. <laughs> you know, if well, we'll talk about the tires later. But you know, the at the same time, you know, my wife loves sort of all the glitz and the glamour and everything that sort of sits around it. You know, who are the yeah. celebrities that are going? And I, and I just don't think you get that in many other sports. No, possibly not. And uh, we talked about throwing a thousand things at the wall and seeing if they'd stick. Did they? Could you predict how big a hit and how good for particularly the US market Drive to Survive would be in attracting new fans? No, no. I mean, I think 
listen, I, I wasn't directly involved in it, but I was obviously there when all the decisions were being made. And I think, you know, some of my colleagues at Formula One and my former colleagues at Formula One have to take a lot of credit for, for making some good decisions. But, you know, no matter how well you, you lay the table, no matter how well you lay the table, you, you don't know how the meal is going to taste, if that's not a <laughs> terrible analogy. I loved but, it. Um, you know, the fact that, that the production, they hired the right production company, but that production company then just did a super job in uh, the production company's box to box. They did a super job in actually putting the show together. And, you know, then it just caught fire. And, you know, I think the pandemic had a part to play in, you know, people looking for more content mm. to watch or having more free time to watch content because there wasn't as much live action. And so I think that that, you know, the combination of lots of different things made it a huge breakout hit. I think uh, one thing Liberty Media wanted to do immediately, which actually relates to, to what you're doing at the moment now, is change the way we consume it, change the way uh, things are broadcast to us. So obviously in the UK, you inherited the Sky TV deal and you know we only get one race a, a, a week, one race a year that everyone can watch free at the point of use, which my personal view, it's an absolute tragedy. You are absolutely bleeding youth fans now who would have been sat watching it but just now won't be F1 fans when they grow up. That's that's my personal bugbear. But F1 TV, I think, is was Liberty Media's ambition to say, well, actually, it's not going to be on any channel. You just pay us $10 a month and we'll transmit it to you on internet. Well, so the whole sports media landscape is changing and, you know, I'm currently involved in a in a in a company called D2C Sport, which is basically focused specifically around OTT, uh, because it's it's the thing which is really changing is that, you know, with the Netflixes and Amazon Primes of this world, everybody's now used to not having to subscribe to a Sky or a BT directly and getting their content in a different way. So, you know, certainly Formula One was at the forefront of that in terms of their thinking around F1 TV. Um, and, you know, it's about trying to put new and different things into that, which really appeal not just to the hardcore Formula One fan, but, you know, pricing it and putting the right content in that makes it interesting for somebody that's even a moderate Formula One fan. And that's the sort of the next evolution of it, if you like, is how do you get to those people which aren't yeah. diehard Formula One fans? Yeah, I mean, sports has been behind in this kind of cord cutting revolution. Could you just give us a, a quick primer when you say OTT, it's over the top. I guess, does that just mean bypassing cable and satellite? Yeah, you said it probably right. better than I could, okay. right? But, but you know, I think that you say that sports is behind and part of that is a legacy thing because sports has been such a massive driver of subscriptions to Sky and BT and, you know, yeah. cable Virgin, networks in yeah. the US or wherever that, um, that, that they that they're reluctant to let go of that or they can't they can't make up that money in ott directly so there's this kind of transition that's happening now where uh, um people like f1 are trying to have their cake and eat it a little bit so for example in the us there's an agreement with espn which is a basic cable channel but at the same time you could also subscribe to f1 tv and so you know arguably it's kind of cannibalizing ESPN. But I think the view is if you're a real hardcore Formula One fan in the US, you'll subscribe to F1 TV because you're getting a little bit more than you would yeah. just get on ESPN. Yeah, and um, and things like making the live timings available as well through through basically F1 TV and the F1 apps and the F1 website has, has been just revolutionary as well. And like you say, making it fit for purpose. So how are you taking that experience of what F1 is doing with Over the Top and taking it sort of, 
out to the civilian non-F1 world? Well, uh, you, you mean in terms of my current business? Yeah. Well, well, so that's it's a very different strategy according to the different sports that you're working on. So, it's, you know, a lot of people are not as far along in their journey as F1 is. And so, you know, what you'd propose to say a, a rugby club is very different to what you'd propose to Formula One. And so what we're just trying to do is make sure that people have the best sort of independent advice around uh, around how to exploit their relationship you know, direct to consumer, if you like. So um, it's a different solution for different people. But certainly, the, the you know, having been there with F1 TV, it was, you know, a fascinating experience to see how F1 approached it. So if I if I want to broadcast my missed apex karting events and charge a, a pound a ticket, I, I go to you guys and uh, with my footage and my stream code, uh, and you'll get it out there. We will do our best <laughs> for a fee. For a fee. Uh, makes rates. Right. <laughs> uh, wonderful to speak to you, Murray, today. Uh, Murray Barnett, you were the what's what was the head of global sponsorship and commercial partners at Liberty Media. I know you, you, you tried to downplay where you were on the food chain. Well, that, that is pretty high up. It must have been very exciting to be like right there at the top tables and the top meetings uh, of that new era. Well, it's, it's just totally unique. I mean, you know, it's everything from, you know, mil- meeting Bill Clinton to, uh, you know, standing on the grid just as the as the race is starting. And I, I think it's a, such a unique sport and um, it's just it's got plenty more opportunity to grow. And I think there's some very smart people there that are going to that are going to are absolutely going to smash it out of the park. Well, do you think if we collected some questions, you might you might come back and we could do a, a segment, uh, Diaries of a Liberty Director or something <laughs> like that, Murray? What, you mean like some kind of therapy session? Is that what you're saying? No, because I know people will have absolutely have questions about what it was like <laughs> and we'll see how much we can. In fact, we'll have to say evening show, get a couple of beers in first <laughs> and then we'll see what information we can get out of you. But hopefully you will come back and speak to us again. Uh, delighted to. Thanks for having me. And uh, can we point anyone to anything? So, like uh, your TikTok or your Instagram? Yeah, you can. You can find me on uh, on Twitter at Murray Barnett, and uh, I'm pontificating about sport and the business of sport there. So, uh, come and find me. Fantastic, Murray. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Excellent. I enjoyed that. Now then, here's some tech time. I'll also enjoy it. No no quizzing me though because I'll be very sleepy after having listened to Tech Time because it's so it's so interesting that I close my eyes just to make sure just not I'm not resting it's just to make sure I'm fully focused on listening to all that information from Summers and Trumpets. It's Tech Time now. And once again, we're fortunate enough to be joined by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, assistant technical editor at Motorsport.com, who has deigned to sit down and share some wisdom with us. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. And thanks for having me on again, Matt. Well, of course, it's always great to see you. And we've had a triple header, so I'm sure there must be a lot of things that we're going to get to talk about today. A huge amount of things to get through, yes. Wonderful and lovely then. Well, I tell you what, how about we start at the front? I know that seems like a big surprise, but let's start right at the front. And I want to ask you about, because we have we know that Red Bull has been working like mad on their car. They've been bringing vans full of parts. Mercedes has been more stealthy about it, but they say they have upgrades going on. Is there a difference here between development and upgrade? And if so, uh, how is that going to affect the picture in 22? Okay, so there's obviously various development streams always going on up and down the grid, and they come in different forms. So obviously, the thing that is most present and available for people to understand would be um, aerodynamic upgrades, because those are visual things that you can see on the car week in, week out. And that's obviously where we track a good percentage of the performance uh, from team to team. But you also have to remember that um, teams do also pay attention to other aspects, whether that be weight saving uh, so that they can then move around ballast around the car uh, and also things like uh, suspension setups where we've been seeing uh, regularly quite recently uh, difference in teammates uh, setups in order that they can get the best from one car to the other. So there's always ways in which uh, the teams can find different levels of performance without things that perhaps are visual on the car. Um, although it has to be said that Red Bull have obviously been throwing the kitchen sink at the, this season uh, in order to try to make up the gap and actually go beyond Mercedes in having pretty much an upgrade available to them or an aerodynamic upgrade available to them at pretty much every race so far this season. Uh, that sounds like a massive difference in intensity. And I know that Mercedes was hobbled more than they expected, and I think everybody else, by the new aero regulations. Do you see the upgrades being able to close the gap? And just uh, while I'm throwing multiple questions at you, do you think that Austria in particular was a bad track for Mercedes and that maybe in some sense we are not getting the accurate picture of the gap between the two teams? Yeah, I mean, the the big talk of late has been about the very little amount of upgrades that we've seen from Mercedes so far this season. But I actually think that that was predominantly their plan. Um, 
we have to remember going into this season that Mercedes have had the, the big foothold in the championship anyway um, for the last so many years. Uh, so they had what would con- be considered a, a large margin to play with. Um, so they've gone into this season perhaps thinking that they didn't need to, I'm not going to say they didn't need to push as hard as perhaps they they, they appear to needed to do uh, from now on. Um, but they knew that they had some margin in, in, in advance of the rest of the teams. Unfortunately for them, Red Bull have obviously made massive strides, not only on the aero and chassis side of things, but obviously the, the Honda side of things as well, which we'll cover a little bit later on. Um, and as you say, the Red Bull ring hasn't necessarily always suited uh, Mercedes. It has sort of drawn them towards the other teams um, because of the the arrangement uh, that's required around there because of the altitude that that circuit is at. Um, that has an impact not only from the power unit side of things, but also from an aerodynamic perspective as well. Right. Well, if we can sort of get into that Honda upgrade a little bit, that would be fantastic because to me, when I look at it, and I, I want to ask about their oil upgrade in just a second, but when I read your lovely article about everything that they had changed, what I saw was that it seems like they're designing a power unit that's able to cope with higher heat than it previously had been. And it seems like, especially at a high altitude circuit, that would be a, a big differentiating characteristic. I mean, I remember them having to open up the cooling in Mexico. So there's a lot of different things that come into play there, yeah? Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that for this particular set of regulations on the power unit side of things, that the big gains come from thermal efficiency, uh, being able to use the energy within the fuel. And obviously then you have energy management as well, which also bleeds into thermal um, efficiency side of things because you you have to manage the heat uh, of the power unit um, in its entirety. So at, at circuits where you have higher altitude and obviously rarefied air, you do stumble across this problem whereby you want to run as low a, 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 as low a cooling solution as possible in order that you don't lose aerodynamic, aerodynamic efficiency. But there's a trade-off between then that making you suffer in terms of your, your power unit performance as well. And so what we have noticed this year is, is that A lot of the teams are obviously trying to manage as much as possible the size of the cooling outlets that they have on their cars and the positions in which they run them, um, which bleeds into uh, something we might cover a little later on in terms of McLaren. Um, And that obviously means that all of the teams are not only looking at their own performance, they then have to look over their shoulder at other teams as well. Something that I think that has really played into this battle between Mercedes and Red Bull this season is the way that they're actually looking at one another in order to gain performance because they're not only thinking of what they have to do, but also what the other team is doing as well. Okay, so as important as the Honda power unit has been, Uh, they have highlighted the oil upgrade that they got. And I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Cause I'm, I I was actually, I read the article. I was completely fascinated by the, um, by the research and how long they've been working on it. Well, it's the same as any kind of lubricant upgrade that we've seen in, in formula one over the last sort of eight years. Um, Again, leading back to thermal efficiency and the way in which that uh, heat is managed 
uh, for the performance level of the power unit. So this new uh, lubricant that's uh, Mobile One, Exxon Mobile, however you want to uh, see them in terms of where their region is around the world, um, has something derived from the cosmetics industry, apparently. Um, I I think that's more of a sort of storyline more than anything else. Um, But as you mentioned, the changes that have gone on with the Honda Power Unit for this year bleed into what is coming for 2022 as well with the uh, emergence of uh, the e-fuels and the research and development that's been done on that side of things by both Mobile One and Honda as well. So we have to remember that the specification of power unit that they're using in the Red Bull and Alpha Tauri this year is kind of a step ahead because they've kind of jumped the gun a little bit further forward. Um, and the, the power unit that they're using this year has gone through, as you mentioned, I, I did that article on it, a huge amount of change compared to um, the power unit that they've used in the past. Uh, so we, we're dealing with something entirely different to where we are we were before. And obviously that is a, a big proportion of where the gain has come relative to Mercedes. Yeah, and I have seen uh, similarly, I know there's been a recent analysis about Mercedes and its aerodynamics saying that they were literally pegged back to almost 2019 levels. And so in order to make up for their losses, they're having to run much draggier architecture to get the balance they want. And then your powerful engine is not as useful on the straights, is it? That's right. So as I say, it's it's all about management around a lap. And that's where we're starting to see that different sort of open up between the, the, the two uh, rivals. You can see where uh, Red Bull are making their gains and it, it's on deployment in, on the straights. Um, so not only from a direct ICE component, but also from the energy recovery that they're able to do because their car is just better managing that energy around the, the the constant of a lap uh that you know it's just made them overall a, a better performing car um at this stage in the season at this particular venue but we've had this discussion before uh, as we mentioned with you know matthew carter in the past when he mentioned uh the uptake that lotus had um when they were given the special engine mode um back in the past uh from mercedes so it's nothing new um, it, it's just the way in which uh, we are currently uh, situated um, with the power unit versus aero side of things. Uh, and uh, obviously, as we've already mentioned as well, uh, this circuit suited Red Bull particularly well. Uh, speaking of circuits and characteristics, it, it came up a bit um, in a conversation we had last Tuesday on the show. What are the differences between a front and a rear limited circuit? And do you see, I mean, I have a theory that Red Bull has the biggest advantage at rear limited circuits and a Mercedes closes the gap most at front limited circuits. Do you see a similar thing? And is that something that to a certain extent affects all teams? Yeah, to varying degrees, obviously, it will have an impact on all of the teams. Uh, We've discussed this perhaps offline as well, in in as much as that, as you mentioned, depending whether it is a front or rear limited circuit will have an impact on traction um, most predominantly, but also on tyre wear, uh, our favourite topic. 
um, and the way in which then you are able to manage a stint and, and having to take that into account uh, for each of the drivers that are also um, in your lineup. So obviously different drivers can manage things in different ways. Uh, we know that uh, you would classify, for example, uh, Lewis Hamilton and, and Sergio Perez as tyre whisperers. Um, but there's limits and levels to to how you can get that performance out of those drivers for for the given circuit and obviously the the front or rear limited circuits as well. On top of that, that obviously also bleeds into the uh, downforce levels that the teams are are running a specific circuit and which has been a hot topic this season with Mercedes having to sometimes split their strategy on which rear wing solution they use uh, with with Lewis Hamilton often taking the lower downforce wing um, as a bit of a, a more of a gamble, I would suggest, um, because he knows that he can limit uh, the problem that that should effectively cause him uh, from an aero point of view uh, with the car sliding around uh, on, on the particular tyres. Okay, that is fascinating. And I think it makes a great um transition to talking about mclaren because you have always said that mclaren's approach was to set up as neutral a car as possible and we have seen them do excessively well on a variety of different tracks um sometimes more so than you might think but what i want to know is what is the secret to their success i mean let's face it they out qualified the factory team which i'm sure mercedes was not really happy about he and he was half a tenth from taking pole position away from Verstappen. And I'm talking Norris now. Obviously, Ricardo is a little bit different story, and maybe we can get into that too. What have they been doing that has brought such performance to their car? Okay, so obviously we break it down into the fact that I have mentioned in the past that I have always felt that McLaren have created what is more of a benign car, enable them to set the car up uh, more effectively over the rain, uh, over a larger operating range. Um, but that also means that it allows them to deal with the tyres in, in a different way, uh, thinking about things differently um, from race to race as well. Obviously, Norris is mega around this circuit. It's not just this year we've seen it. We saw it last year as well. Uh, so that always comes in handy when what your driver is particularly good at uh, one circuit in in particular. Um, In terms of their development, I think it's very interesting that they started out with uh, a much larger rear cooling outlet on their car, um, perhaps thinking that they needed to be conservative in the opening races whilst they um, got themselves used to having the Mercedes power unit once more. Um, And Recently, I believe it was the French Grand Prix, but I would have to double check that. They came along with a new cooling outlet, uh, which is much smaller at the rear. And obviously, that means that you get a small aerodynamic advantage from that because you're you're not rejecting as as much heat. Um, you're not giving up as much uh, aerodynamic performance because you've closed off that, that inlet slightly. Um, but on top of that, they've also brought in new cooling panels beside the driver. Uh, which rejects some of the heat created. They only ran one in the first race at uh, the Styrian Grand Prix, but they ran two in the Austrian Grand Prix. So they learnt some tricks, let's say, from the first race and carried them over to the second. And I think that's part of what we're seeing from McLaren this year. They they take what they've learnt and they apply it week on week. And on top of that, they've you know they they have had development throughout the course of the season. And for me, they 
they stand back and they apply things after retrograde from other teams. The Z-shaped floor, for example, they were a little late to the party, but they still stayed within the bounds of the rest of the teams. And since they've applied it, they've gained extra performance over them that already have it. So I think McLaren have done an exceptional job this season in closing that gap and obviously bringing themselves further towards the the front two. I don't think they've realistically caught up with them. I think we've seen a bit of an outlier in terms of where they are at the Red Bull ring. Uh, But I do think that uh, they've certainly made some really good strides with the car this year. Uh, they have. Is there any word on, or do you have any insight into where Ricardo is relative? Because we would expect a driver of his caliber to be within a tenth or two of Norris. And although it looks like he's making progress, I mean, he mentioned being happier with the car. Uh, and I know you've pointed to the power unit and other things before, but are they still just trying to find the thing that is going to unlock the magic for him? Yeah, I, I, again, I think it's one of those scenarios where he's coming to a, a team uh, that is very well suited around Norris. Um, you know, he's been there for a number of years now. The car suits his driving characteristics, or he has changed his driving characteristics to suit the McLaren. Uh, whereas, you know, Daniel is a little bit of a different driver in the way in which he he goes about his driving style. Um, obviously. He's known as uh, one of the great breakers um, on the grid, uh, and that has always been one of his strengths, and he does seem to be struggling with that. If you look at the overlay data between the two, that seems to be predominantly where um, the the factors uh, sort of misalign. Um, on top of that, obviously, you've got the, the tyres to consider as well, uh, because obviously that will have an impact between driving one particular chassis over another, um, so he might not be getting the best out of the tyres with this particular car compared to what he was used to in the past. So I think it's just a, a case of uh, the, the two will start to come towards one another as Ricardo gets more and more comfortable. Um, but obviously there's that growing pain stage of, of actually getting to that point. Uh, and I think even Ricardo is getting a little bit frustrated that he can't quite get there as quickly as he would like. Well, speaking of people who've no doubt been frustrated, I think George Russell uh, has absolutely been someone who, you know, has been very, very patient in a car that I think we can all agree was less than optimal. And now we have seen them for the first time, Williams, that is, uh, to me at least, show signs that they are have found a way out of their aerodynamic wilderness. So I wanted to ask you, Am I right about this? Is this new development? Is this the new brain trust? Is this the new money working? Or is this just they finally dug up some stuff in the file drawers that never got implemented earlier because they were on a save every penny possible plan? I think there's a bit of a combination of both of those factors. They had an upgrade in France, um, which I think has really started to unlock unlock the performance of the car. They tested some of those items in the lead up to that in Baku, etc., but they actually put it on the car in France. Um, obviously they didn't do fantastic there um, relative to how they've done um, around the Red Bull ring Um, but as we can see from Russell's performance in Austria either the Styrian or Austrian Grand Prix it's not only over the course of one lap which is where he has excelled in the past as well it's actually translated to race pace as well you know he, he just didn't finish ahead of Fernando Alonso in the last race um, and 
to just cover what upgrades they had. They had a new bargeboard cluster or a, a you know an updated version of their bargeboard cluster. Had a new floor and a new diffuser and a new rear brake duct um, winglet set, which are all things that have been um, a problem under the new regulations. Those are the areas that were affected the most by the new regulations. And we know at the start of the season, they were suffering from a wind sensitivity point uh, problem, um, which all of these things are looking to resolve. So I think they've just basically gone out there and, and resolved the issues that they've encountered as part of the new regulations. Now, whether they would have done that under the old guise of Williams or whether this is a new sort of, factor involved in the new uh, management system i'm not completely convinced one way or another I, I think the big issue that people aren't really tracing this year is the fact that all of the cars that are out there are last year's cars with new aero bits tapped onto them we've still got last year's chassis effectively when you go to think about it so the standing point of certain teams were already at a point whereby they were at their best level uh, and so they have very little to find, whereas Williams had a lot to find. So they have, they're able to make that big progress because, you know, the, there's, there's bigger area to, to make advantage in. Okay. But I, I would say regardless, it's, it's promising that they are going somewhere, that they look like they're beginning to tickle Alpha Romeo and not so much just lead Haas around on a bit of a merry chase, as it were. Yeah, I, I think it's fantastic that the amount of progress they've made. I'm really pleased to see uh, that they're able to, to, you know, fight it out at the back end of the midfield now, rather than just trolling around at the back, uh, which is unfortunately what Haas are doing this year. Yeah, and and they're doing it. Um, I've been very entertained by Mazepin's chassis complaints uh, personally about him complaining of having a heavier chassis because they've had to add extra ballast to get the um, balance correct extra ballast to get the balance correct i did say those words in the right order yes you did yes uh, and yeah it's only a few kilograms uh, as far as i'm aware it's it's nothing you know it's not like they've got uh, an extra man sitting on the back of the car for argument's sake uh, we, we're talking you know small margins but you know that's what f1 is about small margins yeah it's not that it, it's not zero but it's not a second a lap either um it has not escaped my attention that we're going to have some new tires at Silverstone. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Why are we seeing new rear tires when we were told that we weren't going to see new rear tires? And given that, sort of what are the characteristics and how might it play into the aerodynamic uh, efficiencies of the various cars on the grid? Uh, well, the, the last point there is a bit of an unknown um, because, you know, it could, it could play any which way. Uh, according to what I've gleaned from the information that was available out, outside of Austria, um, they don't have too much of an impact. Uh, but I think that's where the small margins come back into it, and we could perhaps see uh, some large gains made further down the season. You know, the, uh, understanding and being able to extract performance from anything is probably tires that's where i would always head towards you know aerodynamic performance can give you a long uh, uh, you know can get get you a long way but tire performance is where you really harness the the extra um lap time um in terms of why and how we've got these tires obviously the tire protocols that have come in uh in the wake 
of the issues that Pirelli found post Baku uh, mean that the tyres uh, perhaps weren't being operated in the means that they anticipated in the past, which means that they kind of wanted to experiment with having something that would actually work better uh, for the teams and give us uh, a product that obviously allows more performance. So the new tyre that we will see as from Silverstone has a stiffer tyre uh, sidewall um, and will allow lower pressures once more, uh, which is what the teams are always searching for. They want to have lower tyre pressures to get that performance because it means there's more tread platform available um, and it means more traction. It just means more grip effectively. Um, so I would anticipate that this is a very good move. Um, I don't really like mid-season tyre changes. I think it can have a massive impact on the uh, the title. Um, but in this instance, I think it's a good thing because we've had such a revolution with the tyre protocols themselves that I think we need something in terms of the tyres just to, to, to make advantage of those situations as well. Okay, it was really the stiffer sidewalls that caught my attention because I, like you, remember the sordid events of how many years ago would it be now? 2013. Yes, and and it was the wobbly sidewalls that absolutely destroyed Red Bull's arrow, much to their chagrin and to um, uh, Vettel in particular's um, detriment. So I, I was just curious if you thought that stiffer sidewalls might be helpful to them in the same way. Although my personal guess is that I think this is going to help Mercedes more because they do seem to have been struggling in general with the rear. This will let them lean on those tires extra. Yeah, as I say, it, it's a bit of a toss up at the moment because it, it kind of suits Red Bull in some respects, as you mentioned, if we, we think back to how it played out in 2013. But because of the high, low rake philosophy argument that we've had in the past, you could also argue that uh, it might help uh, Mercedes narrow that gap slightly as well. Okay, that's the new tyres. The other thing we have coming up um, is the sprint race, which I, I've seen some complaints about that. I wanted to ask you specifically with regards to the clutch. Now. Um, uh, several weeks ago, we saw, I think it was McLaren and at least one other team uh, actually basically going in the press to the FIA and saying, our clutches won't last for that many starts and and we can't replace them in park for May. We need a, an exemption or we need a rule to let us do that. And the FIA seemingly just sort of shrugged their shoulders. Have you been paying attention to this story and, and what's the outcome? Well, I, I think this is a problem that we see develop on many occasions when the rules are changed or the sporting regulations are adjusted um, because you suddenly see where teams are trying to take advantage from a certain situation. Um, you might remember me covering the exhaust situation that uh, was happening at Renault and McLaren in the past, whereby they were basically changing exhaust uh, uh, systems between sessions uh, because they were outside the perimeter of the um, power unit regulations. So they could do it free of charge effectively. They weren't being penalized for, for making that change. Uh, and now you can only have eight exhausts per season, of which Alpine are already on the, the, the problem 
um, zone, let's put it that way, uh, for this season. I think they've used probably half of their allocation already. Um, so this is just a, another example of that situation. A team's basically finding a way to find small nuggets of performance um, by operating within the grey areas of the, the sporting and technical regulations. And now that they've kind of been found out by uh, a new event cropping up, they're, they're now having a little bit of a complaint over it because suddenly it's going to actually have a, an impact on them. Okay. Uh, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If a part is broken, you can replace like for like. So at the end of the day, if they're like, our clutch springs are broken or damaged, they can just put a new one on, can't they? Yes. But I think there will be a statue of limitation that the FIA will say, well, this is a bit beyond where we should be you know, with, with these particular parts, which is what happened with the exhausts uh, with McLaren and uh, Renault, now Alpine. Um, and that's why that was bought in. So I think they might get away with it to a certain extent um, as damaged parts, as you mentioned, um, going into perhaps the, the first sprint race. But I think after that, we might see uh, the FIA toughen up their stance a little bit to, to try to rule out uh, what is perhaps a bit of a performance grab from those teams. Yeah, and in particularly at the start. And the last thing I want to ask you about is they're essentially going to get a mini race on Saturday and a practice to prepare for Sunday. How are they going to use this aside from the obvious, get the best grid position possible? Will, will this actually be advantageous data gathering for the team relative to your usual qualifying session? I think in some respects, yes, but the the thing with a a shorter race distance is that you're obviously going to have the car um, compromised in some ways because if we are having part firma between obviously sessions uh, as we are then obviously you're going to have to compromise the car for sprint races or um, you might think well we'll throw all our eggs in that basket. This is the interesting aspect, I suppose, from a sporting side of things, uh, when you've got a sprint race versus a uh, a full-blown race the next day, is how do you set the car up? Do you set it up based on the conditions for the sprint race or do you set it up thinking about the long-term objectives? Uh, and that's where perhaps there might be this misalignment in terms of balance between the teams. Right. So certain teams will be aiming everything at getting the best position and putting it all in the sprint race basket. And other teams will be taking the longer view, looking at the point on Sunday. Yeah. And what I find very interesting is the fact that um, where we have seen the Williams uh, qualify in, in the last couple of races, um, suddenly that isn't so important with a sprint race. Uh, because you might see them start to slide back down the grid uh, and put them back into their usual position. So it, it, the sprint race idea, um, I, I'm I'm not fully sold on. I, I don't. I, I have no ideas one way or another. I, I'm going to let it play out in front of me uh, and see how it unfolds. I don't want to uh, just say I'm for it or I'm against it at this stage. Well, I think that's a very clever way to go about it. I tell you what, where can people find you on social media? The best place, as always, is to find me on Twitter, and it's Summers F1. Lovely. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. We appreciate the time, and I hope we get to do it again soon. So do I. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Three solid sections for you there. I hope you enjoyed that. We're going to do a little bit of listener feedback and a little bit of admin as well. So first admin is the next show will be 8pm on Sunday after the Silverstone Grand Prix. I, I think this will be fascinating. We will go into, I think, a summer break after that. And if Mercedes get beat again, people are going to draw all sorts of conclusions that the season is is done and dusted. I, I don't share that belief. It will certainly be a, a good point for Red Bull. It will be another victory if they go there and beat Mercedes. But it's a long season, and we have seen seasons like this flip-flop. One of the Ferrari seasons recently, 2017 or 18, I think Ferrari was still ahead at this point. Alonso was leading, wasn't he, in 2012? Yeah, and uh, and of course... Yeah, McLaren were leading in 2007. So I don't think I don't think this championship is over by any means at all. Looking forward to the race review there. I've got me and Matt, I think Gene Z and DJ are going to be your panel. See, I organise. I think ahead. Uh, a little bit of admin as well in the form of the live stream. We're going to continue live streaming as we've been doing, but we are going to monitor our patron live stream channel and we're going to turn off the live chat for the moment. That might well become permanent. I know that's going to sound like a, a milking the cow and getting everyone to move over to Patreon. Um, Patreon.com forward slash Miss Apex. I, a, I don't think that would work. I think you would see through a cash grab like that. Uh, I'm going to go into more details in a blog post. But essentially, I, I was just soul searching a little bit because I had normalized coming into the shed on a Sunday and having the odd person go, you suck. Spanners, your trainers are ugly and you smell like a bull. I'd got used to that and I'd normalised it in my head to the point that I didn't notice it growing a little bit out of control and I didn't notice the effect it was having on my panel and several of the panel have been affected by it and and I've got a kicking from some people who are just persistently in there to upset them while they're trying to enjoy contributing to the show. And, you know, my wife pointed out to me that her singing career, she wouldn't have been able to do anything if there was a live chat there with people just saying, you suck and your dress is ugly and whatever, and you can't sing. Even even if there was 100 people cheering, that, that one person just standing in front of you and going, you suck. Uh, yeah, it's it's been tough on them. And at least I know if I monitor the patron Slack group, they're invested emotionally as well as contributing financially. And they're unlikely to do that just to tell us we suck. I've tried to go down the moderator path and the mods did a really great job, uh, but you know it's, it's become an unwieldy beast. So for now, we're just turning that live chat off and, and we'll, we'll look at the chat in our, in our Patreon group. Uh, but that won't affect watching the live stream. You can still tune in, whatever. Those race review live streams will be open and free to everyone on YouTube. And if you want to yell, you suck, you can do it in the YouTube comments later on in the finished version. So don't worry, you still get to tell me that I'm terrible. Let's do some listener feedback as well. Um, I've got a big response. I'm going to have to switch to my phone here. Big response to a listener email that we read out about the, the alleged attention spans of American viewers. Maximus says, as a hardcore American F1 fan and longtime listener, I'd appreciate it if Stan- Spanners could stop talking about us Americans like we're all dumb and just want explosions and gimmicks. Hey, Maximus, it wasn't me. I didn't. I didn't say that. It was a. It was an American writing in saying that. I don't think that at all. We've got. We've got such a good community on Facebook uh, and our patrons. 
And I know for a fact that the American audience is either educated or willing to learn. I was uh, I was against that email and I was going, no, 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 no. I think Americans will take the time to get invested in the sport. And if they if they need it, the sport to change so much that it's unrecognizable to old fans, then they're probably not the kind of people who are going to stick around anyway. The people who stick around are the people who are going to love F1 for being F1. It's the same in relationships as well, kids. Don't change yourself too much for the pretty lady or the pretty boy. Yeah, you just, you be yourself and then the people who like you will will stick around and the people you lose, you were going to lose them anyway because you were going to have to change yourself too much. Uh, The biggest problem, says Maximus, with F1 in America is the fact that it's on at 6am in in that country. Thanks for reading. End of rant. Thank you very much for, for getting in touch. And I have to say, overwhelmingly, the response to that email was was anti so craig says sprint races are dumb maybe they could mandate that teams use their backup driver let's scroll through a bit more uh we had uh, ali zen say hi i'm an american here regarding americans getting bored with f1 due to a lack of ac- uh, action is nonsense the americans watching f1 now are dedicated sports and motorsports fans who get up early on a sunday morning to watch I agree with you entirely. Evelyn F1 here says, Hi Spanners, let me commend you and the team for producing the undisputed best F1 podcast available. No big message here. Just wanted to congratulate and commend you and the team and say keep up the great work. That was from Evelyn. Lots of really positive emails this week. I won't sit and read all of them, uh, but mostly they're saying American fans do get F1 and they do appreciate it. And I understand that. Also just waves of positivity in general from you guys i do read every single email that comes through and they all land right here in the fields audio listeners i'm touching my heart and saying that's where my feels are so thank you so much for that uh, spanners at mistapex.net if you do feedback at mistapex.net both me and matt get it all right i think i've uh yeah i've waffled on enough look out for the blog post i'll go into a bit more detail about what we were doing with the live chats and stuff and why we've made that decision. But until we see you for the race review at 8pm next Sunday, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Mr. Apex Podcast. I'm on my own. I've got no one to do the end of show banter with. I've been saving up jokes as well, but if no one laughs, what's the point? Da, 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 da. I'll just sing along. It's quite long, actually. I've made that bumper too long. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.